Imagine, demand, and build a world transformed. Hi everyone, uh, we're going to get started now. Welcome to TWT 2020 and to this talk, Corporate Trade Deals, History of Resistance. My name is Deborah Hermans and I've got the pleasure to be moderating tonight's session. Um, I'm a project manager for the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung in London, who are co-hosting the session. Uh, and I'm also involved with The World Transformed and Momentum. Just before I introduce the session and the speakers, um, a few really, really important announcements. Firstly, to make the session more accessible, we'll be using a live transcription service called Otter. Attendees using Otter will have to follow a link and open the transcript in a separate window. And the link should be posted in the chat box now. So click on that if you need it and just message us if you have any difficulties. Secondly, the World Transformed relies on your support to continue the great, great work um, that they do all year round. A hundred people have signed up during this festival to the Supporters Network, but we need at least 50 more monthly supporters. And believe it or not, tomorrow TWT turns five. Um, it was on the 24th of September 2016 that it opens its door for the first time. And so what a better birthday present to make than to join the Supporters Network. So just click on the link in the chat box. And lastly, you might have heard this before, but it's really important, a few chat principles. We want everyone to feel welcome in these spaces, for everyone's voices to be heard. Please bear that in mind when engaging with the chat. Don't use inappropriate, rude or unkind language, and please don't spam. Um, and participants who, who do do that um, may be prevented from further posting in the chat. But hopefully that won't happen. Um, of course, if you've got a question, uh, a comment, please post in the chat. Tonight's uh, session, you know, should be really interactive. I'm hoping it'll be a really, really good discussion involving loads and loads of your comments and questions. So do please um, engage in the chat. So on to the session. Um, this event has been co-organized with Global Justice Now, uh, one of TWT's partners who have supported the festival since the very, very beginning. So thanks so much to them for that. And the context for this session is a publication called Trade Secrets, the Truth About the US Trade Deal and How We Can Stop It um, by Nick Dearden uh, and supported by the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. And it's a really, really accessible guide to the US-UK trade deal that's sort of coming up, um, what it means and how we can stop it. And you can see it, you can find it on the TWT virtual stalls or on the link that I'm hoping is being posted right now. And I just want to say I know very little about this topic. I think that's why I'm chairing this session so that I can make it really accessible. But I found, uh, yeah, I read the publication. I found it really, really helpful. And so that's why I'm excited that one of our two speakers tonight is uh, Nick Dearden, uh, who wrote the publication. He's the director of Global Justice Now, a campaigner against corporate globalization and for global economic justice for over 20 years. He's a leading voice in the UK and European movement against the now abandoned EU-US trade deal, TTIP, and he's the author of this new book. And we're also uh, joined by Luciana Giotto, which um, is really, really exciting, all the way, I believe, from Argentina. She's a professor of international political economy, a coordinator of the groups Argentina is Better Without Free Trade Agreements and Latin America um is better without free trade agreements an associate researcher with the transnational institute 
where she specializes on trade and investment and a leading member of Attack Argentina. So in order to help us understand what trade deals are, why they're so central to the sustainability of global capitalism, and most importantly, how we can resist them, Nick and Luciana are going to take us on a bit of a journey through the history of trade deals and how social movements have fought against them. We'll begin with Nick giving us a very short introduction to why trade deals are so central to neoliberalism, and then we'll move across the decades before discussing the contemporary situation, including the US-UK deal. And there'll be plenty of time for questions. So as I said before, feel free to, yeah, just post them in the chat. And given this topic, really no question is too simple. Okay, so without further ado, let's get started. Um, Nick, why are trade deals so important to the project um, of neoliberalism? Thanks, Deborah. So um, a lot of people obviously think of trade as quite a boring, dry subject, and it's all about, you know, what tariffs you pay when goods enter your country and so on. But actually, trade rules and trade deals go much, much deeper. They go right to the heart of the global economy. Um, we should know this here in Britain because, of course, we had a, an, an empire um, whose wealth was built on forcing countries to trade with us in certain specific ways. Um, and when countries didn't want to do that, uh, we kind of bombarded their ports. We bombarded Chinese ports, forcing them to sell opium with us. Of course, many of the cities in, in Britain were built on the wealth of a trade in people, of the slave trade. So the idea that, slave, that trade is always and everywhere good for everybody is uh, far, far from the mark. But that's what we've been told for the last 30 or 40 years. In the last three decades, four decades, trade has come, trade rules have come to embed um, the principles of the market and big business having more and more and more control over our society. The market knows best, big business knows best, and if you just leave them to get on with it, then everything will be okay. Your society will enjoy prosperity and you will have employment and so on and so forth. Um, and so what you find today is all of the things that we on the left are so often fighting against, the power of the market, the power of big corporations, is actually embedded in trade rules, embedded in trade deals that we've signed with other countries. And that makes it harder for democratically elected governments to, to, to serve the interests of the people and to protect the environment that we depend upon. Because that the, the, lo the logic of the market is hardwired into, into trade rules. And trade rules carry the weight of international law. Uh, they're treaties, international treaties. And so it makes it particularly hard for governments to overcome the power of, of, of trade deals, the power of the market. Um, and it also means that parliaments often have much, much less control over um, trade deals but precisely because they're international treaties. So here in Britain, our parliament cannot stop trade deals as things stand at the moment. They're regarded as uh, international treaties that are governed by royal prerogative. So effectively, the queen, in theory, um, uh, negotiates these things um, and, and they then carry the weight of international law. So they're really very, very powerful mechanisms. When people think of the global economy as something which doesn't really, you know, is kind of out of control and has no rules, it does have rules. And, 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 and some of these rules are, are based in, in trade deals and, and they cover all sorts of aspects of society, from food standards to public services to how we um, are allowed to regulate and tax big technology companies to what price um, we pay for our medicines 
and how we can regulate big pharmaceutical companies, stuff that most people would never think of as being really related to trade, um, increasingly have come to be governed by, by trade rules and have come to be embedded in, in trade deals. And that's why anybody on the left who wants a fairer world and a different sort of economy has to take an interest in trade. Thanks so much, Nick, for that sort of introduction. And welcome, Luciana. Hi. Um, so we're going to go um, on the sort of first step of our journey in history. Um, and uh, where we want to go is the sort of 90s and 2000s. And I guess learn a bit more about what happened then, um, um, you know. Uh, and maybe we can start with Luciana. Maybe you can tell us a bit, how did you first get involved in trade campaigning? Um, you know, as a left-wing activist, why did you think it was so important? Yes, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, yes, first of all, I fully agree with what Nick was saying. Um, we have to understand that uh, when we talk about free trade, we're, going, we're talking about the basis of our society these days. I mean, it's capitalism, actually. It's how it works. It will always push, the companies, the corporations will always push for more free, free trade, free investment, free free will, right? Uh, but only for corporations, not for people. And well, actually, I was very young, I have to say, when I started focusing on these issues. Uh, it's been like 20 years now. And 20 years, it's it's not um, something uh, that, I mean, these 20 years, these past two decades are a key moment to, to find uh, the struggles against uh, free trade agreements. Why? Um, I was involved in year 2000, 2001 with a main moment for, for organizations around the world, which was the World Social Forum. Uh, we see that now the World Social Forum is in a form of crisis. Well, it's changing its shape, it's changing its form. This huge uh, place where movements from all over the world uh, got together and shared agendas and proposals and alternatives and tried to understand the world, first of all, to try to maybe have uh, a similar kind of diagnose for the for the whole of the situation. And what we saw is that uh, that was a key moment. We we saw that, for example, that was a, a very important um, moment for the struggle against the free trade area of the Americas, FTAA, ALCA in Spanish. This was a moment when lots of movements around the Americas, for example, got involved in the struggle against free trade. Um, if I have to say now, 20 years after that, I, I would say that that moment was very important as movements don't always, people from movements don't always understand exactly what um, free trade actually means, but they kind of understand after the struggle against FTAA that free trade is not something good for them. So this is really interesting because um, they maybe cannot explain exactly why, but they have this sense that we're talking about corporate power and corporate uh, capacities that go uh, above uh, uh, especially um, human rights and labor rights and also, of course, environmental rights. So uh, I would say that the World Social Forum has to be taken as a moment that was really important, um, not only in the Americas, but uh, all over the world, of course. I don't know, Nick, if you were there, but uh, I had the, the lack of being in, in almost all of the of the forums that took uh, took part um, that were here in, in Porto Alegre in Brazil. And 
we have the first one, for example, for people that, that were, were not there um, to know. The first one in 2001, there were like 15,000 people. To only two years after that, January 2003, when Lula da Silva came to, to presidency, we had 100,000 people in the city of Porto Alegre going only for that uh, social forum. So people from all over the world, it was huge. And, and uh, that was a moment of, of, of fiesta, right? Of, of party. It was something, a, a moment of, of, uh, of a positive encounter. So that was really, uh, really nice. Luciana, I don't know if you remember um, the, when, when the Zapatista rising happened. I, I was just saying before the phone call, I happened to have a picture on my wall here of San Cristobal in, in Chiapas in the south of Mexico. And the Zapatistas, well, you can tell the story probably better than I can, but I remember how important they were to me as a left-wing activist at the time, because up to that point, we'd been very focused on what was going on domestically. And this rising that happened in the south of Mexico was incredibly inspiring and made us look outwards to the world in general. But the interesting thing for me is they were rising against a trade agreement. Absolutely, absolutely. We, we um, I agree there. Actually, it's not only us. I mean... Political sociology agrees that if we have to talk about the, the resistance networks of, of this past year, they, everything began with the Zapatistas, right? Because we, we have to take into account that we had the, the, the Berlin Wall fall and, and, the, and the USSR going down. And then uh, everything seemed like, well, what, like, like Thatcher, right? With, there is no alternative. We have in Argentina at that moment, we had President Menem. I mean, the, the, the years of the of, uh, of political of neoliberal policies and uh, in that moment the day that the free, in the north the NAFTA right the North American Free Trade Agreement had to be set into force that was the day January the first of 1994 when the Zapatistas arose and said Shabasta, right stop there no more it's enough. And it's not a it's not a casual day when they decided it was that day they decided to get out of the of the of the forests and and actually say well we are here we are alive and we have our rights and this is a bad government this is a bad agreement and we have to think about alternatives so yes it was a key moment absolutely and, and these were some of the the poorest people in the world right I mean peasants from 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 Chiapas they worked on the land. Um, many were, were women too, and they took up like very rudimentary arms. And I mean, it was so because and, and Subcomandante Marcos, who was kind of a spokesperson for the for the movement, he said, we're, "We are we, we are at war here, not just with the Mexican government, which has repressed us for a long time, but with the whole global economic system, because if this trade deal." And, you know, they saw the way that trade was expanding into different parts of society. If this trade deal comes here, then it will commodify our land and it will it will completely change our lives. We'll be and they were right. Right. I mean, they didn't manage to stop it, but they were they were completely right. It, it devastated Mexican agriculture um, and, and it worked to the benefit of, of big U.S. corporations, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. Could you just explain a bit, like what what happened next? I guess, like um, you know, it, uh, the uprising started. What happened next? And also, you know, what you know, why didn't they win? <laughs> well, actually, um, they have been struggling in, in the in the forest for like yeah, like forty years now. But the thing is that uh, it was what was very important at that moment, I think, and that's why we have these these. Uh, important moments in the 90s and then in the 2000s is that uh, they were calling for 
the creation of alternatives. They, they were saying, well, this is not working. Capitalism is not working. It's not only neoliberalism, it's capitalism. This is how it works. Actually, they're leading us to a new fourth uh, world war, actually, uh, as Comandante Marcos said. And the thing was that what they were saying is we have to be creative. We have to think of other forms of, of alternatives, other forms of, of uh, also other forms of making politics because they were saying we have to be horizontal we have to take into account all the all the opinions we cannot keep working in 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 the vertical point of view like they do in in the political parties we have to we, we have to be creative so uh, this was like an appeal a very interesting appeal and maybe that's why well so many people from the movements in Europe went to Chiapas. I mean, many many people you could find there because it was an inspiration, right? So they were saying, no, there is alternative and we have to, to create it, right? And it, it was an inspiration for everybody. And it still is, although, well, now we, we, with 25 years after that, uh, there are many other forms of, of uh, global movements right now. For example, I, I don't know if we could say a question to you also, um, if we could say that, for example, nowadays the environmental movement, maybe it's like a grandson of, of the Zapatistas movement in a way, mm. but do the youngsters know about the Zapatismo as we did 20 years ago? Is it still an inspiration? Has it been... It was a, I learned about it in university, actually. It was a, in my curriculum, if that's any consolation. That's important. <laughs> It's important, and they still control, like, uh, they have autonomous areas still in, in, in Chiapas. They're still a force to be reckoned with. But I think for me, it was the inspiration that they provided, and, and nowhere more so than in Latin America, right? I mean, I saw them right at the beginning of what became a, just an enormous wave against uh, neoliberal globalization on that continent, uh, that the, the, the eventually led to what became called the Pink Tide governments coming to power, these left-wing governments coming to power. And what really interests me is the way that they saw trade as one of the things that they needed to tackle. And they created this alternative trading area. And OK, it's not as developed as we would like it to be. But, but they absolutely saw that if you maintained the, the, the trade deals and trade rules with the global north, then effectively your economy was always going to be subservient to the needs of corporations in the north. And that was, that was a big lesson for me in, in why trade was, in, was so important. And can you, Nick, I guess, could you like um, expand a bit on how did those movements sort of inspire like activists in the global north? Yeah, uh, well, maybe we can, this is where we can watch, we've got a little clip um, of, of, uh, of Seattle, which really, I think, is probably the moment when, for us in the global north, it really became mainstream. Uh, the anti-globalization movement, and so on, which, which had been happening since Seattle in, what, 94, and then uh, uh, the Zapatistas in 94, and then Seattle in 99, I think. Um, uh, so it took a while, but, but by the time Seattle happened, a massive protest in Seattle, as the World Trade Organization was holding its summit in that city, and the entire city was brought to a standstill for days. And it was an incredible moment because it was the first moment I remember when there were environmentalists alongside industrial workers. Um, there were people who were concerned about like turtles and tuna and, and, and bits of the natural world alongside people who were concerned about their jobs and their security. And they were together 
and there were trade unions and there were environmental groups and there were development groups and there were church groups and there were it, and it showed the power that this mobilization can can create because it affects all of us in such a deep way and when when was that that was 99 99 november 99 yes so it's been 20 well 20 years now almost 21 of seattle seattle was yes really important it was it was maybe the first time that in the neoliberal decade that people actually got to see that they had power i mean that they could do something they could change something i mean did we actually stop this summit yes they had mm -hmm. i mean there were internal problems. I mean, France didn't want to open up services. And of course, there were negotiations there going around. But the thing is that actually it was uh, demonstrations that actually stopped the, the WTO meeting. And this was huge. This was huge for us because we learned from that. But of course, the power also learned from that because then we had the 2001, which was two years after that ministerial. It was in Doha, in Qatar. So imagine how much you can you can demonstrate in Qatar. I mean, right? We have a monarchy there, and then they and then they they also went to Hong Kong and in Cancun in Mexico. It's yeah. It was they learned from that also. It was more difficult to have uh, such a, an impact after that. But Seattle was crucial. Before, and, and before really you keep going, shall we go to the clip? Yeah, that, yeah. we prepared a clip. Um, so that we can all, you know, know what that was like, um, and we'll we'll analyze it further afterwards. When labor and student and environmentalists and human rights activists stand together, we can and did. The first trailer for WandaVision confirms it. This is the MCU's And did shut down the WTO. 20 years ago this week, tens of thousands of activists gathered in Seattle, Washington to shut down a ministerial meeting of the World Trade Organization. Grassroots organizers successfully blocked world leaders, government trade ministers, and corporate executives from meeting to sign a global trade deal that many call deeply undemocratic and harmful to workers' rights, the environment, and indigenous people globally. On November 30th, 1999, those activists formed a human chain around the Seattle Convention Center and shut down the city's downtown. Police responded by firing tear gas and rubber bullets into the mostly peaceful crowd. And the protests went on for five days, resulted in over 600 arrests and the eventual collapse of the talks, as well as the resignation of Seattle's police chief. The protests were documented in the film, This Is What Democracy Looks Like. You've got people here from all over. You got labor, you got environmentalists, you got teachers, you've got children, you've got coalitions between people of color and um, and and um, and you know mainstream white Americans, you got middle class, you got working poor, you got poor, you got everybody out here because this hurts people. This is bad for people, it's bad for our jobs here, it's bad for the people over there. In the documentary, This is What Democracy Looks Like, organizers Hop Hopkins and Rice Baker Yeboa talk about the brutality protesters face in the streets of Seattle. 
there was so much fear coming out of Tuesday. Uh, I mean, we had been shot at, we had been gassed, people had been beaten and shot. Um, you know, people didn't expect that going into Tuesday, and people had to recommit themselves and reaffirm their position. That night, we ended up meeting up uh, on the corner of Broadway and John and decided about what we can do the next day. The next day, we'd meet up at 6.30 at Denny Park, and then we'd try to take back the city. We started to uh, weave our way through the um, the roadblocks that they had set up, and I looked around. I could see people were afraid, and at that point, I said, "You know, um, that's really not fear in your gut or in your throat. That's really your first taste of freedom." People were coming out of nowhere. I mean, it was like a scene from that Michael Jackson video thriller. People were like coming out of manholes. People were coming out of cars. So we went from like 50 people to like 100 people to like 150 people to like 300 people. And then just the numbers just kept growing. I don't know where all these people came from. And I think the cops were totally surprised by that. Democracy Now! was in the streets of Seattle 20 years ago doing two hours of daily broadcasting. Thanks for that, Tim. Um, can we get all the speaks up again? Do you have any sort of first reactions or any more yeah, comments on that? I mean, for me, the interesting thing is, remember, this was the heyday of globalization. This was like the left, in a sense, was represented by Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, who completely capitulated to this agenda, right? And so we didn't have loads of friends in in, in Parliament or Congress or whatever, it, it really felt like the people. The people were taking on the elites and, and winning because, as Luciana said, the WTO was halted, not just that year. The WTO couldn't make another agreement for 10 years. And if it had been able to, the stuff we're worried about now in terms of the US trade deal, that would already be, all of this stuff would already be international law, right? So we held back a huge amount. and. Somebody said on the on the chat here, I've just noticed, how do we recreate those conditions? I mean, it's a it's a great question and I don't have a I don't have a simple answer to it. But I do think it's worth remembering that this was inspired and sparked off by mobilizations of seriously marginalized and oppressed people around the world. Right? It, it, it was not sparked off from, you know, our friends in Parliament or Congress or anything like this. And. Uh, at that point, we had um, there were no left-wing governments. I don't think in, there were only one or two in Latin America at that point as well. So, you know, it didn't feel like we were in a great place. And for me, in some ways, it kind of came from nowhere, and it came from mobilizing around with our friends and allies in different movements and around the world against the stuff that we were deeply concerned about. And I mean, someone, uh, Stephen has just said in the chat that he thinks one key change from Seattle is that trade rules are increasingly set through bilateral deals rather than multi a multilateral system. Um, you know, would you agree with that? And do you think, what, what changes do you think that's sort of brought about? Yeah, every time you actually get to shake the system, it, as I was saying before, it also learns. I mean, the powerful people also learn how to how to deal with this with this crisis they had in Seattle, for example. So they had to change their their strategies. Of course, they did. And one of those changes of strategies was 
trying to move all the debate from the multilateral agenda to the bilateral agenda, which is rather interesting because if we think that, for example, um, from the neoliberal decade, um, probably, probably, this is my hypothesis, <laughs> probably the, the most significant organization of neoliberalism is the WTO, right? Um, and so if we see how long it actually got to work, as Nick was saying, it was very, very little for, for many, for, for a very few a period of time, very short period of time. Um, actually, the crisis of, of the WTO, we can find it from 2003 and beyond. So we are talking about an organization that tried to organize trade, but it actually lasted in the Victoria, on the victorious side for like five, seven, eight years. That is really, really uh, crazy if you think about it it didn't actually last. So the thing is that they had to find other ways to try to get their, their agenda along, right? So yes, of course, the bilateral agreements are much worse than even the agendas of WTO, but that is at the main the main question probably. I mean, do we as movements go and save the WTO uh, when the WTO is already on the floor? Uh, do we go and say, no, we'd rather have this? Well, actually, movements in Latin America, for example, say, no, we don't want WTO. We're not going to say, ask Via Campesina, for example. No? We're not going to say, yes, let's save WTO instead of having the TPP or the TTIP or the CETA. No, I mean, we have to find some other way. It's not the WTO. It's not the treaties. We have to find uh, something that, that actually can... Um, shorten the power of corporations? How do we make corporations accountable? And how do we actually make them pay for the violations of human human rights, for example, right? That is, a, But that is another question. The, the, the focus is different. I don't know, Nick, uh, how do you, how do you see that? I mean, I think, it, look, I think, I think the rise of the, of the bilateral trade deals was, was in a sense, yeah, like a, a result of us being successful at stopping the WTO, at stopping this stuff becoming like a law that affects everybody. So countries and corporations, yes, they had to do their individual deals. And that's what we fight against um, to this day. But it's, it's the agenda is very similar. The agenda is very similar. And I think what's interesting is the way that we have drawn. I think what we've been good at at movements is drawing some firm and clear red lines. You know, so some of the stuff they wanted to get in the WTO and in the multilateral agreement on investment, which was a mid 90s deal that we that we stopped amongst industrialized countries. It's the same stuff they're trying to put in TTIP and the TPP uh, and now the US trade deal here in Britain. And we've been very good in a way at resisting. We've not won everything. It would be stupid to say that. But we've been very good at resisting some of the really extreme forms of, of corporate power in the world. But what we've been less, much less good at is creating an alternative to that. And I think that, that, that one of the things that particularly worries me today is you don't have a range of governments like we had in Latin America to look to for that kind of alternative. And that's going to be that's going to be really tough. I mean, we didn't start there. But and we, in some ways, maybe we couldn't have predicted it. But we need to get back to the point where there are positive alternatives, I think, that people can look to and experiment with. Of course, you know, one of the things we hoped for here in this country was that potentially a Labour government, um, had they won the election last year, would have been able to start seriously rethinking how the international trade system works. And having a and having a government in the north that's saying those things, of course, would be very would be very powerful and would and would help governments in the south that are cautious, scared, or whatever, of saying this stuff. But we are where we are, so we have to continue as 
as, as we always have done as, as people's movements. I want to continue that discussion because I think it's really interesting and we will do in a bit and I really want to come back to Brian's question in a bit as well which I thought was a really interesting question but we did promise you all like a history lesson or a journey through history uh, and so far we've just sort of looked at the movement in the 90s and 2000s and just briefly for sort of 10-15 minutes I, I want to take us much further back uh, to the 50s to the 70s um, and sort of ask Nick maybe to to hit us off that like you write in your book about um, the problems of trade going back to the pre-war period um, and to the resistance to that system after the war. Like, what did that look like? Could you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, and I've been thinking about this and I think there was two trends after the Second World War. So for a start, like, as I've already said, this, this country based its empire on trading relationships with other countries. I'm sitting tonight you know, half a mile away from the city of London. The, the purpose of our empire in many ways was to suck wealth out of uh, the global south, the third world, the colonies at that time, and into the city of London um, so that it could be used for elites here. That was the purpose. And it used trade rules very effectively. And it came up with this whole concept of free trade, my goodness, because it suited the British empire. It, it, it allowed us to suck that wealth out um, of the rest of the world at that time. After the Second World War, obviously, the empires began to collapse and crumble and there was resistance and they were overcome and so the people in London were thinking well how the hell do we do we maintain this prestige this power in the world how can we recreate trading systems that mimic a colonial way of operating but I think there were two things that were that were working against that the first actually came from here came from social democratic movement but you know also the political center you know the keynesians and so on after the second world war who saw that if you simply let the market rule and govern all the decisions about how a society operates you are going to end up with fascism and war right so they had to try and think in a different way about how you regulate society and so after the second world war they start thinking about okay so you know we kind of like trade liberalization but there are some clearly some problems with it so we think that you know yeah okay we want a a free and open trading system, but to the extent that it promotes full employment, to the extent that to some degree it promotes development, right? It's not just a free-for-all anymore. You, you, you need some rules here that actually begin to constrain the way international capital works. And if you don't, you, capitalism itself is in danger. So it was this kind of Keynesian managed post-war period. And, and that mitigated against some of the worst excesses that we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years. But there was another really important driver. And of course, that came from the global south itself. Um, and that was liberation leaders, liberation movements coming to power in, 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 in African, Asian and Latin American countries and just saying, this doesn't work for us. Right? I mean, if, 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 if we continue just selling you vegetables and selling you metals, right, we're never going to prosper from that. Like we are going to be an adjunct to your economies. And so there was a big push and uh, there was something set up in the UN even called, uh, called UNCTAD, the UN Trade and, and Development. It's a whole institute which kind of advises and, and was, and was in, in, in many ways, it was run by people who believed in dependency theory at that time. This whole idea that, you know, northern markets are controlling the rest of the world for their own interests and keeping countries dependent. And the, the way to deal with that was to de-link, was to set up a fundamentally different sort of trading system between 
yourselves and 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 one day, yes of course you know one day we will we will be able to trade with the north but we want to be able to do it from a position of power not a position of chronic weakness that will re just replicate our poverty and replicate inequality in the world and and really as i say in the, I, for me the high point of that was the mid 1970s where the non-aligned movement right so those developing countries that were not aligned with the us or the ussr um, came to the united nations and they put forward a new international economic order and and it got through the un general assembly in 1975 and and and, and had that been carried out we would have a fundamentally different world today right it, it, it spoke about the need to control capital the need to control corporations um the need to su su support um producers of raw materials and metals and, and and value their goods differently it was a fundamentally different way of thinking about the world economy and that way that that was undermined and marginalized by thatcher and by reagan and that's why we end up with neoliberalism and the world that we've got today because it was it was but i don't want to just portray a, a picture of kind of endless losses and endless you know defeats on, on the part of the movement i don't think it's like that and and, and some countries um, have learned a different way of doing. I mean, look at China, right? I'm, I'm, I'm no advocate for China as being a model society or a model economy, but they have clearly, um, to, to, to a large degree, reduced poverty and, and increased their power in the world and the prosperity of their people by following a radically different model of international trade and international engagement. And I think one of the things we can do now is begin to look at those alternatives again and think about how this is absolutely at the center of how you create a fairer and more a more equitable world, right? Fundamentally challenging and changing the relationships that exist between capital and labor, capital and people at an international level and between countries of the global north and countries of the global south. Can I say something regarding that? Uh, that that uh, I like this idea of saying how uh, actually uh, we can see that in the 90s, our countries, for example, in Latin America, got involved in the free trade agenda. Uh, Nick's comments were very, very interesting. As um, For example, what we see is that it was a question of power, of imposing the agenda, uh, from, for example, the big corporations in the U.S., they impose the agenda, the pharmaceutical uh, corporations, for example, they impose the agenda in WTO, well, in the GATT, and then get into WTO. Also, of course, in NAFTA, in, in the North American Free Trade Agreement, and all the agreements that, uh, the, that USA actually, from that moment, they started negotiating with that model, right? Like an, an, an American model for, for free trade. And it was a question of power, it was an imposition, but also there were so many promises that were uh, put there on the, on the line, right? There were like these huge promises that free trade should actually create uh, miracles and, and bring, bring miraculous results in, in Latin America. For example, um, that, that you would have uh, technological transfer, that you would receive uh, investment, that this would generate uh, employment. And actually, if you see, for example, the preambles of the, of the FTAs or, or the bilateral investment treaties, they are, they are lovely. I, I, I love that exercise because then you say, they say that all of this will be, bring prosperity. Right. And so that was the idea also. So it was it was a question of power, but also it was the idea that if you if you leave uh, corporations to do what they like, this would actually have this this effect of, of going to the rest of society. And but what is interesting also because of the questions that were there in the in the chat, um, 
25 years after that, we still see the same promises going on. That's what he, actually it makes me crazy because we see that we have not learned from that point of view. I mean, we still have a lot of work to do. We, we have to go to, to the alter to alternative, of course. But it seems that when new generations arrive, uh, we have to make them conscious of what's going on with that, those promises. I mean, free trade will not generate that, not because we think that this might be so, it's because we have 25 years of experience, we, know, we have 25 years of data, of science that shows that uh, actually none of this came true. So it, it's very interesting how the model actually started to work and what are actually, that's a question for, for all of us, I mean, what, what should be our, our uh, reasons to, to talk to people and, and tell them that actually this model is not working? How do we explain people that this, this is not working? And well, it's something that we have to discuss, of course. Can I just, uh, Luciana, can I, can I oh, go on, Deborah. Well, I, I guess I was just interested, like listening to you, whether this is sort of the questions that you're posing, whether this is a sort of conversation that is happening in, you know, Argentinian society or other Latin American societies today, um, or whether it's like a very marginal issue. Well, um, actually, it's a discussion, as Nick was saying, um, the pink tide actually, well, you can have lots of criticisms to that. I mean, there's lots of discussion about if it, they worked or they didn't. But actually, what they did was to bring, to, to put on the table all some of the topics that were not being discussed and they suddenly were there. They were shown. It's my, it means... Uh, well, uh, Ecuador, for example, said uh, the bids, the, the bilateral investment treaties are not working. The mechanism of investor state dispute settlement does not work. We need to know. We need information. I mean, we're far behind information. So what, what we started seeing there is that um, these topics were were on yeah what they were on the table they started being important for academia for example they were started being important for move social movements that actually some of them were reluctant to some of the topics of financial activities or free trade and they started looking at, at those points and but now i i think that behind again that's because we are 20 years from seattle that's it, it, it's kind of an important period 20 years it's a lot of time i mean we have these new generations uh new generations in academia for example um there are some governments no not not governments sorry some countries where you like chile for example where the academia is really conservative and they have lots of trouble to find young people with with actually young people that can live from academia that actually can have a salary and 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 uh, dedicate their lives to studying the effects for example of, of neoliberalism and free trade policies and so it's like a constant struggle against this idea of well uh, this is all there is it's a kind of there is no alternative here also you have to you have to sell extractivism you have to sell you have to go on with this model you have to actually sign the agreement with the EU, for example, if you are Mercosur. This is all there is, right? And so the struggle is there. It's like, but that is completely ideological, right? That is ideological because it's not based on actual science, I mean, on data. We have the data on our side, but we have to show that. We have to gather this information and actually show that with books, with booklets, with uh, information going there and showing the effects on, 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 on us, on people, right, of these policies. And that's the most difficult part of all, sorry. <laughs> it's the most difficult part. I don't know, Nick, how, how you see that? 
Well, I was going to say one of the things, uh, it seems to me that when you get into a situation, there's a tipping point in these situations. So you can, we can all be worried as people who know a little bit about trade. Uh, this deal is coming up, whether it be TTIP or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP or whatever. And it takes, and, and we're always thinking, how can we get other people to understand how important this is? And sometimes you just reach a tipping point and it goes. It did with TTIP in Europe and, and we defeated it. And I remember, pe I think people on, on the, um, in the audience will probably remember the protests in Chile. Um, one year, I lose track of time now, two years ago, one year ago, uh, huge protests. And, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a part of that, right? I mean, it was you who told me that. I didn't realize. I mean, and then you showed me graffiti on the walls um, in Santiago uh, against the TPP, taxi drivers talking about the TPP and so on. So this is really interesting how a, how a, how a domestic struggle, a struggle for livelihoods and so on, can become self-consciously part of a global struggle and and trade seems to have the ability to help us do that in some way yeah because it's too violent right i mean the the, the tpp for example I, I i usually well i know that it, it's going to be an issue now in the uk i know that that the, the the government wants to to have uk inside the tpp which shows that actually geography has nothing to do with free trade i mean you can have England being part of uh, the Trans-Pacific, whatever. I mean, it's it doesn't matter. I mean, they just have to be there, right? And and the TPP, we usually call it like the worst. I usually call it well. It's my my opinion, but I usually say it's like the worst FTA ever. It's like the worst of them all. It's like it, it's like the devil of the of the free trade agreements. And for the Chilean society, it, this was huge. As you were saying, Nick, um, we were very surprised that a country that they usually use the example, you know, that for example, one of the of the FTAs they passed with Vietnam, they they told us that it, the, the the project, the law project to have this treaty passed through the Congress, entered the the um, representatives chamber like in the morning and then it passed in the day and the, the other day was in the senate and then you had the the fta uh, going on enforced right so it's like that was all the debate you had and now they were able to stop throughout all last year uh, and the, it, it, it still hasn't passed in chile they're they're always like going to but well of course government of piñera doesn't have the legit legitimacy we hope that it won't pass, but it's because people were aware. It's because they were aware. They got they got to man they, they they got the way to have this technical discussion and make it political and actually explain people how it was going to affect them. So that was a huge victory. Even if the TPP passes, it was a huge victory, and it will it will change everything in Chile, for example. Yes, it's great. So I'm glad we've sort of we've sort of naturally arrived back in the present where it was going to take us anyway. And also, I just had to work this out for anyone who didn't. Um, FTA means free trade agreement. And something that I've definitely always found in this area of work, there's a lot of acronyms. Um, it's 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 really hard to get your head around and everything has a T in it. I don't know. It's it's, it's quite complicated. Um, so before we hopefully have some time to sort of discuss maybe the alternatives that, that I guess we got to earlier and ask some more of the questions, I guess I just have sort of one final set of questions myself for you guys. And that is sort of what are we facing now? Um, you know, how 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 is what we're facing now similar and different? Like what is going on? Like what the hell is going on with the US UK deal? Um, and yeah, are there other deals on the table? Maybe Nick can start off and, and then we can hear from Luciana. 
Well, it's such a complicated question in terms of the US and where it figures in, you know, like what Trump even believes about in terms of trade is a very complicated uh, question. But what we do know is that he's driven by the same US corporations that were driving previous administrations when they were trying to do trade deals with, with Europe. And, and now we have a government here that's very keen to do a trade deal with, with Trump. And, and from a big picture perspective, I, I believe this is because some of the people around Boris Johnson are Atlanticists. Um, they saw the Brexit referendum as an opportunity to draw our economy much closer to the US economy, which is a far more uh, free market. I mean, it's bad enough here, but it's a far, like it's a far less regulated um, economy. Big business has the ability to do far more of what it wants and to hold governments to ransom, essentially. And they see the US trade deal as a great opportunity in one go to draw us closer to that system. So, you know, people will know about chlorine chickens, which has become a big issue with the uh, US trade deal. What does it mean? Well, it's really a symbol of, of how trade deals force down standards. The US produces meat and in fact, all food in very different ways to the ways we produce it. Uh, in, in a trade deal, that food becomes kind of our food becomes equivalent of, with their food, right? It's standardized. You standardize um, and, and you say, well, you kind of produce it in the same way. We treat it in the same way, therefore, and you can import it into, into Britain. And, and in that way, farmers here then can't compete with that food coming in. So they have to push down standards, pressure the government, lobby the government to push down standards here too. And you get this kind of race to the bottom. I mean, it's, it's the idea at the heart of trade deals that the only thing that matters is more stuff flowing around the world, be it money, services, um, or, uh, or goods, not people, of course, but um, services, money and goods, capital flowing around the world faster and faster. And nothing can get in the way of that. So if we have food standards that have been democratically decided here that are in some ways preventing us importing American chicken, that's protectionism right? under a trade deal. Um, and that's the only thing that matters. So get rid of that. You know? and, and there are all sorts of other things in there that we should be worried about, too. I mean, essentially, as I was saying, trade deals today tie the hands of of governments. So we know that even this government wants more tax revenue coming from big tech companies like Amazon, Google and Facebook, and they can't get their hands on it because they're so good at evading taxes. So they've levied this special digital services tax. And America says, no, 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 that's discriminatory against our big tech corporations. You're not allowed to do that under a trade deal. Same with climate change. We need a Green New Deal. We need to make massive changes to the way that our society works. But there's all sorts of clauses in trade deals that make that kind of action um, appear discriminatory or unfair to the poor old corporations. The corporations in modern trade deals even have their own kind of court system, right, whereby they can sue countries for disadvantaging them in some ways, whether that be putting health warnings on cigarette packets or stopping uh, coal-fired power stations or putting up the minimum wage in public services, right? So really... I mean, we call them free trade deals, but really they're corporate charters that basically say the interests of corporations, the interests of capital in doing what it wants, when it wants, where it wants is paramount. Um, and, and, and so that's what we're fighting against here. When, we talk, when, when we're talking about the UK's new trade agenda, that's, that's really the essence of what we're fighting about. It's not to do with whether we trade with America or not. Of course, we trade with America. It's the biggest economy in the world. It's very hard not to. Right. It, it's about whether we import their free market deregulated economic system, as opposed to whether we import their goods or not. Um, and, and that's why it's so enormous. And the problem that we face is, you know, w our parliament has very little ability to stop 
what the government is doing. As I've already said, this is international treaty stuff and it would bind future governments for a long time. So um, uh, that's what we're facing. But I'm, I'm optimistic, actually. And I'm optimistic because of exactly what we've been hearing from Luciana and what we saw in Latin America 20 years ago, that actually it's not just the left who, is, who are upset about this, it's farmers. I mean, farmers up and down the country see the danger and the damage this is going to do to their livelihoods, and they are mobilizing. And so even in some of our, you'll be interested maybe, Luciana, in this, even in some of our very right-wing tabloid newspapers, like the Daily Mail, we now have regular columns saying this trade deal is a disaster, it will be a disaster for our farming and our food standards. And I think when you begin to see those kind of coalitions emerging, then you really have... You, you can really have some optimism about our ability not only to stop this, but to stop the whole um, economic program that is bound up with the US trade deal in terms of, in terms of Boris Johnson's government. I could listen to you explain it all day. Um, Luciana, do you, um, do you sort of want to elaborate on, I guess, other trade deals? Yeah, right now. I would say that uh, Nick mentioned uh, a key word that actually we see everywhere now, that is this idea of uh, standardization, right? The standards, I mean, and the, and the race to the bottom. Why? It's because, for example, as, as we have learned, I, I was saying before that we have learned many things in these 20, 25 years of struggle against the free trade agreements. Um, they have also learned, and they have learned that they need to fasten and fasten the system and fasten the way they gain their profit and make it even simpler and, 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 and quicker for, for, for uh, commodities and for investments to move around the world. And that is something interesting because China is also pushing for that agenda. I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative is also part of this idea. And if we see that the only actually something we can take into, into account in the WTO, although we have already said that it's in, in a huge crisis and it's been in a huge crisis for like 17 years now, uh, the, only two agree the only agreement that actually passed the WTO is trade facilitation. And the one that they are discussing right now is investment facilitation. So the idea of facili facilitation to make it easier for capitals to move around. And that's why they need low standards. They need laws that are around, that are in the middle, and they need them to just move away, move away those standards. So health, health and consumer standards, I mean, they're useless, right? So let's just make it easier for capitals to move around. Let's just make uh, it because it's not only a question of of of, of actually uh, of course tariffs. Now it's not it has not been a question of tariffs for many many years now. Uh, in Latin America, for example, we know that uh, actually the the the, the, the Inter-American Development Bank, which is rather neoliberal. Uh, is always saying that the problem in Latin America is not tariffs because actually tariffs have completely been opened and they are a, a, a bit ab above zero. So it's like the, the problem is not tariffs. The problem is your logistics system is that you put lots of, of problems for importers and exporters. So that is maybe that is the new tendency in free trade agreements. That's why the regulatory co uh, coherence or well, it, it has different names in CETA and TTIP and TPP, um, but uh, these this regulatory coherence chapters are so important because they want to 
know that no uh, legislators will actually get in the way of making capitalism work faster and quicker. And that is actually the nature of capital, right? To move freely around and just to have uh, the world at their feet, right? To, to, to the feet of capital, so at the feet of capital. So uh, that is what we're seeing right now. And that is a huge problem because it has shifted the focus for us. Uh, this was not a, a problem in the 90s, for example. Maybe, I don't know, Nick, if you, if you agree on that. This is something that we see now. I mean, for example, in the, in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Chapter 25, the regulatory coherence chapter is huge. It's a, it's a main problem. It's like a 30 pages long chapter that we have to analyze. We need lawyers for that, for example, because they can help us a lot. We need um, political scientists to help us. We don't need economists there, for example. It's not an economy problem. It's how we actually see democracy working. And that is why uh, free trade agreements are in the core of the way we, we, we deal with society. Uh, because it's always there. Capital is always trying to lower your rights and increase their own privileges, no? right? So that is why we, we have to analyze, to study. We have to have people to actually pay attention to these agreements and to analyze these tendencies and to think ahead of this, right? Because the, 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 the rhythm is really fast and we have to, to cope with that, right? So, um, yeah, this, this is moving very, very, very rapidly. Thanks so much, Luciana. Um, I'm seeing that we've got half an hour left and there were some really, really good questions in the chat. Um, so what I want to sort of do now is move to those questions. They're on a range of topics, so we might move around a bit, but I think they're really interesting. I'm just going to fire them at you, you know, one after another. Uh, don't feel like you always have to answer both, but you're obviously welcome to. Um, so the first question I'm going to go to is uh, from Shelley Granger. Um, this extractive and destructive capitalism is the driver of environmental degradation, so the arguments need to be made. The anti-free trade movement must ally with the climate activists, surely. And you're not allowed to just say yes. <laughs> yes, and that's all. <laughs> no, it's really important, and especially, I mean, it's something we're going to be working on as Global Justice Now next year, because we have we think the UN uh, conference on um, uh, the, the COP in Glasgow next year. And it's really, for me, it's really, really important that people understand that we, we, we not, we're not going to deal with climate change by people just changing their lifestyles, right? It is built in that the, the, the acceleration of carbon emissions is, is hardwired into this economy. And trade deals, I mean, it's almost obvious, right? Because the more stuff you're shipping around the world, the more stuff you're producing and shipping around the world, of course, that's very likely to have an impact on, on carbon emissions rising. But, but it gets even worse because if trade deals become less, as, as uh, Luciana was saying, about just, about just shipping stuff around the world and more about like tying the hands of government so that they can't pass decent regulations, it's even more of a problem. And, and, and there, is, there, there are even some chapters now coming into some... Uh, uh, trade deals which um, are about things like energy neutrality, like energy neutrality clauses which basically make it impossible for governments to discriminate between sources of energy um, that demand the, the, the free flow of energy resources no matter whether they're fossil fuels or renewables around the world. This is just a, a, an enormous problem. It makes dealing with climate change actually impossible. Um, we can't do it. So, so it, it is absolutely contradictory. Now what you're going to hear next year 
um, when we have the COP here is a load of um, people who really believe in trade liberalization saying, but trade liberalization is the answer because we need more renewable technologies flowing around the world and so on. But this isn't how modern trade deals work. Modern trade, I mean, I would agree. I don't know if you would, Luciano. Of course, there are benefits from countries from trading. And one of those benefits is you can learn about technologies and production processes and methods that come from elsewhere in the world. But the problem is because of intellectual property uh, rights in trade deals, you can't make any use of that knowledge. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're stuck continually paying rent to whoever it was that invented this, this, this technological process. And, and, it's, and it's useless to you. So, yes, we, need, we absolutely need to be sharing far more technological know-how and so on. Um, but trade deals actually prevent us from doing that. Um, so it, it, it is not this trade liberalization agenda is, is, is a disaster for dealing with climate change. Yeah, regarding that, I wanted to say something. Uh, I fully agree there. And actually, what I think, uh, what I, it's not me, it's lots of people now we're trying to think this idea. You know that we have this huge debate right now on the Green New Deal, right? Or New Green Deal or whatever the name it is. Uh, it depends on if it is discussed in the US or in the EU or wherever. Here in, in, in Latin America, they are speaking about the eco-social pact, something like that. It's a pacto eco-social, something, something like that, something similar. But what we keep saying from the anti-free trade agreements movement is that there is no Green New Deal with free trade agreements. I mean, you can discuss all you want about uh, energy transition and having a better world or better food or whatever you like. But if you have this architecture of these hundreds and hundreds of free trade agreements plus the bilateral investment treaties, there is no way you can actually, as a country, profit from a Green New Deal. There is no way because all this architecture, this legal architecture that is binding and that is actually binding for states but not binding for corporations, it's actually made for them to, to move around, to have profits and for states to have actually been completely locked there and not being able, for example, as Nick was saying, to actually demand a technological transfer. And because actually, yes, as not only intellectual property rights, but the bilateral investment treaties, for example, Argentina has 55 of them. They actually prohibit that a state says anything regarding any technological transfer to the country that is being host to the investment. So there is no way you can have a new green deal with this architecture of, of agreements. And that is where you have the bond, a, a very strong bond we have to create, but it, I think it's natural. It's not that it's, it's artificial uh, between our 20, 25 years old movement anti-global globalization movement or whatever, or, or alternative, uh, the movement for alternative, global alternatives, with the environmental movement. There is a link there, there is a bond. And we saw that in, in the European campaign against the Energy Char Charter Treaty, for example, or against the cases of, of uh, the ISDS cases, the investment investor state dispute settlement mechanism. So we see that there is a bond there. We have to work on that because, and this is one other thing that I wanted to say, I think that nowadays we have, as maybe in, this is an idea, I don't know, uh, Nick, for you to, to, to discuss, because it's something that I, I'm thinking about. Uh, as we had in the 90s, this strong movement of peasants around the world and the, and the, and the birth of La Via Campesina, for example. Uh, nowadays, it's not only the peasants that is like a very strong movement around the world. 
I would say that environmental movements and women's movements are probably the most dynamic movements right now around the world, I mean, globally, because we have the, the in Latin America, for example, the women's movement is really, really strong and it's really radical. And the environmental movement is filled with these young people that say no more of this bullshit policy. We need new policies. Sorry, this is for English, <laughs> um, but we need something different. I mean, they are actually moving it all and, and we have to have a dialogue there. It's really important that we can actually appeal to them and say, you want to change, you have to help us change this as well. And you have to understand this policy as well because this will actually put a limit to anything that you want to change from the, an, an environmental point of view, right? I'm going to go to the next question. We're going to go from the climate movement to the Black Lives Matter movement um, with a question from Charlie. Um, given the rapid re-evaluation of British history motivated by Black Lives Matter, how do we link the demands of that movement to the history you laid out, Nick, and the movement against the UK-US trade deal? Well, it's a really, I mean, you know, the last few months has been really difficult, but I think one of the bright, uh, one of the bright lights on the horizon is the Black Lives Matter um, movement. Um, I, I am so excited that people in this country are, are coming, like coming, some people are coming to grips with our history, young people especially, and, 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 and looking at why our towns um, are filled with statues of imperialists and so on, and saying, is this, you know, is this right? And, and this is really important because very, very few British people traditionally have really understood our history or, or, or what it was all about. But so much of it was based on these exploitative relationships, which are mimicked today in, in, in trade relationships. I really think if you want to understand how little uh, Black Lives Matter in the global economy, you only have to look at some of the trade agreements that we've got. I mean, there's two things, right? There's trade agreements and there's the debt situation, right? We, both of which suggest that capital is far more important than people's lives, and it's particularly more important than black people's lives. They don't matter at all compared to the rights of, of, of capital and so on. So, and, and these things are embedded in international structures. It's not just it's not just biases in the way people think about the world. They're, they're actually they're, they're meant to work like this. They are meant to suck wealth out of certain parts of the world and into other parts of the world to enrich people um, elsewhere. So for me, it's incredibly um, exciting. I know there's a whole load of work and really important work being done about policing um, in the US, policing in Britain, um, and, and all sorts of, of, of stuff domestically. But I really think that the international picture is such a major component of this. Um, our entire history is built upon um, sucking wealth out of other places in the world and, and proving that, that, that people's lives don't matter to us in those places. And we must redress that and we can only redress that through the transformation of the international economy. Luciana, do you want to come in on it or shall we go to the next question? All good. All right. Um, so uh, we're going to go to Navid's question. Um, what are the prospects of the EU changing its approach to trade deals? And what resistance movements are there in Europe or on EU trade deals? Maybe you can start that, Luciana, because you're working on one of the EU trade deals at the moment with some considerable success, we hope. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, I'm working on the Mercosur-EU agreement <laughs> that Nick was, was uh, referring to. Um, well, I think that um, probably some of the, of the things that we see from, from the outside of the EU way, the EU's way of treating uh, trade agreements, I think it's, it's even a bit better than you have in other countries. For example, uh, because of, of social struggle, uh, this is what I will say, please don't misunderstand me. <laughs> because of social struggle in Europe, you have been able to have, well, at least in the EU, now after the Brexit, I don't know how that will work, but um, after uh, inside the EU, you have uh, all these new mechanisms in the past years that they have had to create because of social pressure. For example, having this sustainability impact assessment, the CIA, uh, the SIA, um, that they uh, actually have to, 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 to count with in the commission in order to have a negotiation. I mean, this is completely, you can say, well, it's like somebody playing the guitar. I mean, it's like, it's not really important as the way they are treating it. But for example, in countries like Argentina or Brazil or Paraguay, Uruguay, or all the countries that the EU already has an agreement with, like Peru, Colombia, Mexico, Central America, blah, 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 um, there is no such obligation. So we see countries like, as I was saying with the example of Vietnam and Chile, right? Just passing the, the agreements, right? So I think that uh, that's from, from the outside. That's how I see it from the outside, from a country that is not part of the EU. But then when I see the EU's policy, what you see is that they have been making lots of changes. So nothing changes actually. Because they are, for example, uh, they, they try they, they put themselves as the head of the reform of of the WTO, as the head of the re, of the process of reforming the mechanism of ISDS of investor state dispute settlements that is in every uh, bilateral investment treaty signed on all over the world. But actually, they just want to make these cosmetic uh, changes, you know. So it's actually we, we still see that. Um, the, the foreign policy, the, the trade policy of the EU is actually corporation-led. I mean, you still have this, uh, um, it, it, it's corporation captured, right? It's, it's been completely led by the interest of big capital. And that's why you can see now, for example, an example, a particular example. We see these days, uh, for example, you know that um, Angela Merkel met Greta Thunberg like um, three weeks ago regarding many well many things uh, regarding environment in germany but greta thunberg and the fridays for future movement asked her to please stop the mercosur eu agreement and she said she publicly said angela merkel that she was not so keen on the on the agreement that actually she was going to see if actually germany uh, stopped supporting the agreement the following day you had a declaration of the big corporations in germany telling Angela Merkel, we need the EU-Mercosur agreement because this will actually help us. This agreement will guarantee us the access to markets in Mercosur and it will help us get out of the coronavirus crisis, right? And this e economic, uh, economic crisis that we are having uh, globally these days. So this is what free trade is like, it, how it looks like actually. It looks like People with the goodwill saying, well, I don't like this agreement. And then corporations coming around saying, no, no, you have to sign this agreement. You cannot say that publicly. We need you to sign this agreement because we need this agreement. Or otherwise, 
the U.S. companies will will actually uh, win the, comp the comp economic competition, or the Chinese will actually win the economic competition with us, and we will start sinking, right? So this is what actually the, the EU's policy has been like. Um, it's not a, a policy that actually cares about trade policy, uh, cares about environment or, or human rights, not at all. Nick, you want to come back on the initial question about prospects of that approach changing, or do you want to move to the next? Well, I one? mean, I I agree with what Luciana said. Uh, the only thing I would say is they're under phenomenal pressure on this, though, and I still think um, there's a good chance you will win and stop this deal. And the deal is awful, particularly, I mean, you know, for all the reasons we've said, but particularly because the European Union is dealing at the centre of the Mercosur deal with a, with with the fascist government of Bolsonaro. Um, who, as part of this deal, is 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 going to increasingly produce stuff made in cut down bits of the Amazon rainforest. So it's actually going to speed up the the, the destruction of the Amazon rainforest. So it it's, it goes completely against everything that EU says it stands for, and it's completely hypocritical. But the pressure they're under is 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 phenomenal. I mean, even even Macron, I think, put there's, there's something in the French Assembly at the moment saying the EU must just suspend all of it, not just Merc the Mercosur deal, all of its trade negotiations at the moment until we've sorted out this mess that our trade policy has become. So, you know, there, there are huge problems, huge hypocrisy, but I do think if there's one place in the world where you could say actually public pressure has made a significant difference um, and, and, and trade policy is almost at a standstill, um, it, it, it would be in the European Union. And it would be very interesting to see what happens in, in, in the months ahead. Thanks for that. Um, I'm going to uh, ask one more question, our final question, um, hopefully ending on a sort of inspirational, um, you know, maybe slightly utopian note, um, be it this is the world transformed. I'm going to go to Esme's question. Um, there is no alternative, was mentioned earlier, the neoliberal land we hear from Thatcher and others. What alternative models are out there? How can we get the trading world transformed? Loving the pan, Esme. Take it away, whoever wants to go first. And if yeah, you want I, to make any final comments, now's the time to, to make them as well. Okay, then I will go there and, and then Nick can, can wrap up. But um, I would say that there are lots of alternatives out there. I mean, it's not these alternatives are not something that we just think about, but just, people realize them. I mean, people do them. They, they carry them out, right? They, the alternatives are there. Uh, we talked before about the Zapatistas. I mean, the Zapatistas didn't ask for permission. They just took over and said, we're here and we're going to create our own forms of government. And this is all. And this is how it will work for us. We'll have our autonomous education, autonomous uh, health system. And we're poor, but we will make our own decisions the way we want them, because actually, otherwise, it's impossible. And so people are... are carrying these alternatives out. Of course, it's been difficult because real alternatives are anti-capitalist alternatives. I mean, they, they are alternatives that capitalism can't cope with them, cannot channel these alternatives through uh, policy space and policies of, of, of any sort. I mean, actual alternatives are alternatives that are radical. So the thing is that uh, we usually have all these of these huge um, amount of, of things that are going on. Some of them relate to governments and policies, and we want policy change. Of course, we're talking about here about policy change, but we want a, a, a society change. 
And in that way, that's why it's so interesting to have these days uh, the feminist movement around. 20 years ago, it was not like that. It did not have this strength. It's not that it's new. I'm not saying it's a new movement, but the strength that the feminist movement has right now, and it's completely radical. And they talk about feminist economy and new forms of relationship. And this is completely something that capitalism cannot, cannot cope with. The, it, it will be really difficult to, to, to channel this through, through capital forms, right? Um, and also the environmental movement. I mean, the environmental movement has to move uh, away a, 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 a step forward and, and they have to, and, and when governments say, this is what you want, I will give you what you want. And then these youngsters should say, yes, thank you for this, but this is actually what I want right now. It's like a historical movement and right? should, we should be there. We should say, we want this. And now that you give it to me, I want this other thing. Like, well, Sisek, uh, Slavov Sisek used to say that. He said, movements have to be hysterical. And in a way it's very interesting because then you keep radicality. And that is where you can actually be different and, and governments cannot have you inside and, and you can always keep your autonomy as a movement and, and, and keep uh, your critical positions. Otherwise, well, it's, it's, dif it's difficult, right? Uh, in Latin America, it has been that way. We'll see how it's, it keeps working in the, in the new periods, right? We have these, these tides and we'll see how it works. But that is what we try to do. We, we try to keep radical, keep uh, autonomous, and, and, and keep thinking and creating and trying to be trying to be creative in the way. That's what we need right now. That's what I think. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you're absolutely right, Luciana, that of course the alternatives in many ways arise from the struggle itself. It's impossible to say at the beginning where things will go. It depends how you know, what we come up with as part of the struggle. But I do think we're not necessarily starting with a blank sheet of paper on this. And, you know, there, there, there's been experiments, for example, with the alternative um, uh, area of the, Ameri of the Americas that was part of the Bolivarian project in Latin America to say we want a completely different trade system. And this trade system will not be based upon a race to the bottom, but a race to the top. It will be based upon transfer of wealth from the richer to the poorer parts. And it, it, it wasn't developed as much as we would like. So it's not like you can look at it and say, look, this is exactly how every aspect of it works. Um, but nonetheless, there's, there's definitely some ideas in there that I think we can use as we, um, as we redesign a trade system going forward. I think there's, there's ideas we can use from the post-war period. I think there's ideas we can use from the, idea, from the dependency theorists and the kind of delinking model, especially for, for countries in the South. And to give my one plug of the meeting uh, in, this, in my book, uh, which you can get free. Um, I, I just put some of those ideas together at the end. And it's not like I don't have a blueprint for how a trade system would work at all, but some principles and some ideas that we need to begin discussing as movements. Back in the days of the World Social Forum, we, we discussed these things together at international meetings, and we don't do that at the moment. And we need to get back there. We need to get back to doing that. But I do think that, that, that a lot of these ideas come from within the struggle itself. And that's why the second plug I will give is please, if you're not already involved in the campaign against the US trade deal, get involved in it. Stopping the US trade deal is not going to make the world a perfect place. Of course, it's going to stop it getting a bit worse. But through that struggle, we form new alliances, we learn new ideas, 
um, we, we can begin to create something different. And I'm really excited that I think we can do it on this. I think the US trade deal is, is, is the biggest trade struggle we've had in this country for a long time. And although that doesn't directly affect Latin America or relationship with the global South, um, it, te learning about how trade works is vital to that. And, and, and creating this debate at the center of our society is vital to being able to transform the world economy. And for people who want to, we have a day of action on the 24th of October, we hope. We're trying to work out how we can do it safely and so on in these times. Of course, we would rather not be doing any sort of protests at the moment. But unfortunately, our government is determined to continue negotiating, ratifying, signing and implementing this treaty despite coronavirus. So we have to find some ways to resist. So keep an eye on that. Um, on our website and yeah, get, get involved. Thanks so much, Nick and Luciana uh, for joining us tonight, especially Luciana as well, who we hadn't met before. So interesting listening, listening to you and solidarity to everything you're doing um, in Argentina. Um, and yeah, thanks so much to Nick as well and one book plaques allowed. So um, I, will, I will let you pass. Um, all right, so that sort of um, brings us to the end of tonight's discussion. Um, I've got three things to say to you before you go, so please stay on. Number one, to continue the discussions, we've got the community forum, and you should already have an account by now, let's be honest, but if you don't, uh, you can find the sign-up link in your email um, or just email info at theworldtransformed.org. And the idea is, uh, you know, to sort of continue these discussions, meet uh, fellow comrades from all over the country, um, so do go on it. Secondly, um, there are still, I cannot believe I'm saying this, but there's still, I think, four or five days left of TWT uh, 2020, the month is not yet over. Um, and there's still some really, really exciting events to attend. I want to make a quick plaque tomorrow at midday, I think, um, is um, a really, really important political education event on trans liberation. Um, so you should go to that. Um, and then finally, Finally, I mentioned this at the beginning, um, the World Transformed needs your support and the World Transformed is turning five tomorrow. So if you're not a supporter for the World Transformed yet, now is the time to join the supporters network. We've been organizing this for five years with very little resources, basically volunteers. Um, and we cannot continue doing that for the next five years if we don't get you support. So please, please join the supporters network. And just to end, Thanks so much to our lovely tech volunteers uh, who, as always, um, have been yeah running everything really smoothly. All right. Good night, everyone. And stop. View the full TWT20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransformed.org.